What is essence of joke? Why why would you call that? Oh, so terribly interesting. I, I like okay, that. Yeah. Right, That's right. the favorite my the favorite my favorite thing about jokes is that they are little uh, nuggets of uh, literature aren't they in everyday life. Ooh, you are up your own asshole. You are wearing your own ass as a hat. That's how far up your ass you are. That's not that far up. As uh, garters. Great. Correct my joke as well. Yeah, you're you're <laughs> you're getting there. You're getting to garters. Okay. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello everyone, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. I am Abby, and spotted dick sitting across from me is Daniel. (laughs) Hello. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to get a little romantic on you, but it's our Valentine's Day episode. It is the most romantic of puddings, you're right, yeah. <laughs> Listeners, as you may be aware, this is the Valentine's Day special. And, of course, we've got all the traditional trimmings. The room is crawling with bees. Listen, we are devoted worshippers of St. Valentine, and he's the patron saint of bees. Yeah, and it's beekeepers. Full yeah. Lord of love them. wicker man up in here. Daniel and I actually, and this is not a joke, we are sharing an office at the moment, and I gave Daniel a key, not as a romantic gesture or even an administrative one, but as a traditional symbol to ward off epilepsy. St. Valentine is the patron saint of epileptics. How are you feeling? Did it work? Uh, well, I don't have epilepsy, or still don't, so that's good. You are welcome. That's all right, yeah, thanks. And, of course, most excitingly... He's the patron saint of Les Boss. This is a Save Me From My Shelf first. We are recording from the merry old isle of Les Boss. We are, and the book we're covering has some sapphic frisian. Sappho is the poet from Les Boss, who uh, is a lesbian in more ways than one. Yeah, uh, kind of the original, the, really. The <laughs> original o- and best. The OG <laughs> yeah, lesbian, exactly, yes. yeah. So we got one letter in our inbox. Here we go, this is one from Aisha. Hello, Abby and Daniel. I'm a teacher and have set your podcast as wider reading for my A-level students a couple of times for their texts, Othello and Gatsby. I'm sure you've had these suggested already, but but would you do episodes on Turn of the Screw and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Problem with that one is that we all know them. Premise. You say Except that for one of go on, yeah. Uh, one of my students here at Aston had no concept of Jekyll and Hyde that it was miraculously a book that had never been spoiled for them, which I thought was incredible. Yeah. They had a great time reading it. They really didn't know it was what? happening. So it, yeah. it was like meeting somebody from 1886 yeah. going, what's this about then? We had originally planned on doing Turn of the Screw for Christmas. We did a poll and people would rather hear a Christmas carol. So we Basic. Have... <laughs> So we have actually bumped Turn of the Screw. That's going to be our Halloween episode. Oh, is it? I remember that. Great, thank you. We, we had a gentleman's handshake. <laughs> okay, did we? Right. Okay. Love those. But I think Jekyll and Hyde will certainly be on the docket, probably, if we, if we end up doing a season three. Thanks for the great content so far. Aisha. I get really charmed when I hear people are assigning this to their students. Those poor, poor students. Fools. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but also, come study at Aston. 
want, if you want more of the same. It's <laughs> fun here. Okay. And we do have one thing by way of a correction. What? So, so in our last episode, we had a letter from somebody named Glenn who asked us a few questions about how Daniel and I met and how we got to be friends. And I, I made a bit of a gaffe. I revealed that Daniel and I are not actually friends. Unfortunately, no, it's, no. it says on the descriptor for this podcast that we're two friends and academics. So we, um, we got in a little bit of trouble with corporate f- because... You know, we revealed that what's going on inside the podcast is not actually what it says on the tin. To that end, they have decided to send us on a series of bonding exercises to, to try to make us actually friends to help, you know, cover up this, this gaffe. <laughs> Last week, corporate then sent us on one of those ayahuasca retreats in the desert as a sort of bonding exercise. How was that for you? Did you... We didn't really talk about it. I woke up with the ability to smell time and a resilient apathy for you. Um, That's all I came away with. Yeah, well, I got buried alive, just with my head poking out and... Did I do that? eating it. No, I think it was um, local people's. I'm quite refreshed after that. Yeah, but are we any closer to being friends? I don't think so. So, Daniel, what is our text today? Valentine's special. A tale of romance. We're going back to the 1840s. We're up north. Do you like romanticism? Do you? Kinda. Kinda. Exactly. Kinda. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want romanticism but leavened with a bit more kind of like rags to riches, mid 19th century buildings Roman stuff? Uh, Sure. Great. Well, book is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Trigger warnings, we have abandonment, suicide, stabbing, mental health, childhood abuse, starvation, imprisonment, fires, just general injury and blinding, a lot of Orientalism, uh, Caribbean and Romani racism. Daniel, would you like to do some background for us, please? (laughs) Yes. So previously we did uh, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. This is by her elder sister, Charlotte Bronte. She was the sort of oldest of the surviving Bronte sisters and also lived the longest, although still died pretty young. Yeah, so if you if you want a little bit more context on the Brontes, because we're not going to repeat all of their background here, um, and they had, you know, very similar lives, they were sort of isolated, do visit our Withering Heights episode, which is episode three. We're still, I think, a little rough in that yeah. episode, still figuring... Well, that's primarily me just saying that they all rode down a hill in a bath. <laughs> That's, that's useful to people, but I'm, I'm happy. They wrote under pseudonyms. They wanted specifically uh, unisex names. So she picked Currer Bell instead of Charlotte Bronte as her nom de plume to help sort of disguise the fact that she was a woman. She wanted people to not really know one way or the other. Mm. And when this book came out, people, m- much like with Wuthering Heights, people were like, well, this book by this Currer Bell, this Jane Eyre book, uh, you know, if it's written by a man, it's a work of genius. If it's written by a woman, it's probably secretly just chock-a-block full of tampons and by a mad person. So she she did, when it was eventually revealed what her identity was, she did get some pushback on this, but she did become briefly the toast of London, which was difficult for her because she lived a very isolated, very weird life. So I think she felt quite out of her element. She was also a bit... Um bossy, wasn't she? I know that's a, uh, <laughs> that's a loaded word, isn't it? Now I think about it. Oh, but she was the sort of, um... man here telling me that a woman was bossy? Yeah, was I'm, she shrill, I'm too? Totally aware. I'm, I don't know, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but she uh, kind of bowdlerized Wuthering Heights and also suppressed and her sister Anne's tenant of Wildfell Hall after they died. 
uh, didn't she? So she kind of like managed the Bronte literary estate, or maybe mismanaged it mm. you know, in a way that kind of made her look good. Do you want to explain what the word Bowdlerize means? It's named after some American guy called Bowdler who rewrote Shakespeare and removed all of the naughty yeah. allusions. You, you take all the sex and violence you know, out of Shakespeare, you're not left with much. No, yeah. The, the, the protagonist of the novel, Jane, and uh, Charlotte had kind of similar lives, didn't they? They both were governesses and teachers. Well, this is subtitled an autobiography. Yeah. So, you know, it's positing that Jane Eyre is a real person or that the author is... Lifting from their own lifting life. Lifting from their own life. <laughs> it's um, their own fantasies, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I'm, I'm not going to fully explain this here, I'm going to wait till we get to the plot and then at the end before we do the analysis I'm going to talk more about this but this book is actually dedicated to the author William Thackeray who was one of the greatest literary stars of his day and for reasons that will be made plain later her dedicating this book to him caused an absolute ruckus like a, a national scandal so stay tuned to find Ooh, out what that's wow. about So our narrator, a poor orphan named Jane Eyre, lives with her aunt, Mrs. Reed, and her three popular girl-style cousins, even though one of them's a boy. Uh, and the cousins are named Eliza, John, and Georgina. And as I saw once on Twitter, I can't remember who said this, I wish I could rename these jerks Control, Alt, and Delete so I could hit them all at once. <laughs> so Jane is treated like shit because she's a poor relation who's sort of like you know, taken in out of their charity. She's nerdy and she's really intense instead of being sort of rich and beautiful and charming like her cousins. So this is basically like Aubrey Plaza being roommates with the Sex and the City crowd. So one day it's raining outside and it's raining in Jane's heart and she can't go for a walk that day. So instead she does the most relatable thing I've ever heard, which is to go make herself a blanket for out of some curtains and read a book about birds. So, um, as we talked about in our Christmas Carol episode, you should always pay attention to what characters are reading in books, because this is a really easy shorthand for characterization and symbolism, and Jane is going to be compared to birds a lot in the book. Here she talks about feeling affinity with solitary birds who live in bleak places. Good. So this one reference gives a lot of characterization. And Jane reads all the time. She's even read the two books that have angered me the most on this podcast, so if you want to go back and to listen to those episodes, Pamela and Gulliver's Travels, our last episode. But, okay, can we talk about Jane reading Gulliver's Travels? She must have gotten a bowdlerized version of this, right? Because could you imagine little Jane reading about hairy That's assholes? That's why so weird, isn't it? I'm just thinking about her reading, the, like her, him sitting on women's nipples and shitting everywhere. Yeah. If she wasn't already getting warped by her adopted family, this, this is going to do, do it. But Jane is interrupted from her reading today by her cousin John, who's just this real 14-year-old Dudley Dursley son of a bitch who bullies Jane at every opportunity. And Jane He's mental, isn't he? Yeah. Well, because she's only 10 and she's yeah. quite small for her age, and he's so much older, so that he's just a real little face. He punches Jane for no reason, calls her trash for daring to read a book from his library, and then throws the book at her head, hurting her badly. So Jane's learning from a young age that if you're poor and a woman, you gotta keep your head on a swivel and watch your six. Yes, yeah. 
But our friend Jane here, she's got a little bit of an anger management problem, which I love, and she calls John, quote, wicked, and because of that, she is rewarded by being locked in the Red Room, which is a big, freezing, gothic, red-colored bedroom that Jane thinks is haunted. This is some shit just straight out of The Shining. The, the, the biggest thing that smarts is the unfairness of the situation, isn't it? And I mean, Jane gets a lot of grief as well for being... They, I think everyone thinks she's kind of a little creep, but, but John Reed, I find him to be way more of a creep. He's, he's very much one of those spoiled boys who's like, you know, mother and I. Yeah, he's great, isn't he? Because he's like, you know, when people are always like, oh, bullies just they have problems and they need they need. People. Bullies are bullied. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Bollocks! It's like it's people like this. It's like, oh, I'm rich and you know, I'm mean spirited. You know, like, yeah, it's just that, isn't it? My mum says I'm the best. What's that, mother? Jane's yeah, yeah. breathing in another room. I'll come save you, mother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's absolutely a boy who says mother. Yeah, she's in the the, the red room and has bit of a freak out, you know, as you probably would if you were trapped in a room, and kind of ends up fainting. The family and servants are all kind of um, a bit alarmed by it, and... Uh, yeah, they're like, maybe we are abusing this ten-year-old, because she's like almost near death, isn't she? Like, she works herself into such a state. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So Jane is kind of like, it's that classic line you're a kid, isn't it? Like, when I'm dead, everybody will be really, really guilty, won't they? They'll, then they'll be sorry. That's the prefab <laughs> I had written here. Oh. I'll be dead one day, and then you'll feel sorry and sure as shit. Respect my ghost. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Damn it, I hate it when we have the same joke. Jane is kind of disturbed by the whole experience, she falls into a kind of depression, cries all the time, doesn't have any interest, not even in bird watching, which, you know, is a bad sign, isn't it? <laughs> the apothecary comes, he's a nice guy, isn't he? The apothecary for the servants, not the doctor for the family. That's kind of an important note that Jane makes, isn't it? He's like, this kid's clearly, like, miserable and being abused. Let's, she needs to get out of here pronto. He, he, he sort of wonders, like, should you maybe go away to school yeah. or something? Which is good because Jane clearly hates it here. She's ready to tunnel under the walls like she's in Hogan's Heroes. And so after this, after Jane recovers, one day she is inspected by a strange man named Mr. Brocklehurst in front of her aunt. And Mrs. Reed tells Brocklehurst that Jane is a bad little girl. And Brocklehurst tells Jane that bad little girls go to hell after they die. And he asks what she needs to do to keep from going to hell. And Jane says, quote, I must keep in good health and not die. Oh, yeah. Rock and roll, Jane. Flick a lit cigarette at him and moon walk away, friend. But anyway, so he's the head of this boarding school called Lowood. And he and Mrs. Reed have agreed that he will take Jane there to get her off Mrs. Reed's hands. Although, in fairness to Mrs. Reed, I know a lot of nine-year-olds who have worn out their welcome with me. And Lowood School is awful, so it's freezing cold all the time. The food is constantly burnt. Um, I will say something about that because that's my due. It's, it's your job. My, my historic right. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's your... The McDougals always go on the left and I always discuss food. They all eat horrible burnt porridge, the kids can't eat it, and they all kind of nick it off each other, don't they, if they have anything good. A teacher named Miss Temple tries to give them nice, you know, bread and cheese and stuff. Brocklehurst is not having any of it. He says, Oh, madam, when you put bread and cheese instead of burnt porridge into these children's mouths, you may indeed feed their vile bodies. But you little think how you starve their immortal souls. So, um... He, he's a kind of nutter, like a zealot. He wants the kids to have shit food. That was always planned. You really got into that. You did a little, like, church chin quiver. You got the... Yeah, I love doing that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I, I should have been a firebrand preacher. 
You kind of would rock that. Get you a linen suit, boy. Yeah, so Brocklehurst, I mean, you guys thought that the church fathers and the crucible were uptight. Brocklehurst is the sort of guy for whom the very concept of France would make him want to spit nails and die. This is actually a bit of an autobiographical moment as well, because the famous three Bronte sisters actually had two older sisters, Mariah and Elizabeth, who went away to a religious school much like this, and they got sick there and they died, and that hugely influenced the writing of the, the three younger sisters. Yeah. Did you ever have any sort of religious education? I mean, not really. I, have a, I, I shook hands with a bishop once. <laughs> That's <laughs> not a joke. <laughs> I, I genuinely shook, ha I shook hands with the Bishop of Truro. So, I mean, Dana, we don't, need to, we don't need to know what you call your penis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's a nice guy. Um, but, uh, yeah. I'm sure he's. Lovely. I'm christened. I'm, I'm christened, um, but I'm not. I'm not confirmed. Moving swiftly on, <laughs> the only saving grace at Lowood is a teacher named Miss Temple, and Jane is like. She was tall, fair, and shapely. Brown eyes with a benignant light in their irids. On each of her temples, her hair of a very dark brown was clustered in round curls, according to the fashion of those times. So she's just clearly obsessed with her the moment she walks in the room, and you know, there's obviously a queer reading here. Mm. I'm getting one to yeah. say it. Uh, I mean, young Jane is figuring some stuff out. I like that Miss Temple is like a four or five in some place like London or Paris, but damn if she's not a ten at Lowood. It's terrible to say that. Jane is weird, she looks funny, she's lonely. You know, that's just her sort of MO. That's being 10. Yeah. In uh, fairness. She makes friends with a girl uh, a little bit older than her called uh, Helen Burns. And they sort of bond over their kind of shared love of reading. Helen Burns is, is quite a weird character, isn't she? Uh, and when she gets kind of punished for anything, she kind of just sort of goes into a trance. And, she, and then later she talks about how she doesn't even care about it, does she? She's kind of like, oh, I, I was owed it. She comes from, uh, like, Newcastle, doesn't she? So I'm going to do a funny voice now. She says, It's far better to endure patiently a smart which nobody feels but yourself than to commit a hasty action whose evil consequences will extend to all connected with you. And besides, the Bible bids us return good for evil. <laughs> Jane says, by contrast, that she wishes she could break her, uh, break her teacher's nose. So... I mean, there are there are Janes in the world, and there are Helens. I think we know which one I am. Um, Helen's a kind of intellectual as well, isn't she? Got, this, we've got another sort of... <laughs> I don't know what you thought about this, but we got... Helen reads a bit of Virgil out loud, and Jane feels her organ of veneration expanding at every sounding line. I didn't know if there was something to say about that. organ of veneration expanding? Yeah. This school cut through heterosexuality like butter. Yes. Keep up this Valentine's Day spirit, friend. I'm glad you picked up on this line because I actually missed it. Uh, I'm always noticing funny references to organs. Um, Did the bishop notice it? <laughs> Stop everything. Helen, she has a cough. You know, but it's probably just one of those coughs that don't really mean anything, you know, like in real life. Do you think when an author or a film director goes out of their way to point out that somebody has a cough, would you call that conspicuous consumption? <laughs> I am all killer, no filler this episode. No, no, I like that. Yeah, that's funny. The school is situated in a forest dell, a cradle of fog and fog-bred pestilence. It's a diseasey sort of pestilential place. And As opposed to a healthy pestilential place. Yeah. Um, 
Helen, of course, gets sick and dies. Oh, and, um, and what's more, she's happy to die. She's like, oh, I'm so pleased to be finally meeting me maker. Oh, I'm going to go to Abraham's bosom and they're yeah. going to name a whole street <laughs> after me in heaven. I bloody love Abraham. It's, it's a scandal, uh, nevertheless. Uh, and Brocklehurst, um, he loses his kind of power at the school, doesn't he? he so Jane grows up and she finishes her schooling and is just thoroughly bored of being at Lowood. Jane places an ad in the paper looking for a situation as a governess. So Jane surprisingly gets a response to this advert right away, and it's a job teaching a little girl named Adele in a place called Thornfield Hall, and she later days from Lowood. And Jane is very warmly welcomed at this mansion, and she gets on really well with the housekeeper, who's named Mrs. Fairfax, and she finds out that the owner of Thornfield Hall is some gentleman named... Mr. Rochester, but he's away from home at the moment, so Jane doesn't get to meet him. Adele is his ward, and it turns out, surprising precisely no one, because this is kind of what ward means in the Victorian era, Mr. Rochester's illegitimate child. Adele is also French, so clearly Rochester has gotten up to some f***ing at some point, because only French people have sex. The English have never been known to do it, or not anything that resembles sex anyway. Um, and this is the only thing that Jane knows about her mysterious employer, that he probably knows his way around a lady's pants. So Adele's mother, we eventually find out, was a French dancer named Celine. She ran off with an Italian singer, and everyone pretends for Adele's sake that Celine has died. Um, and so Mr. Rochester here has gone from being Celine's sugar daddy to Adele's sugar father. <laughs> now, Jane is having a great time at Thornfield Hall, until she starts getting some super gothic vibes from the house. By which I mean late at night, she starts hearing creepy laughter somewhere in the distance. We are in it now. I love spooky shit like this. The first time I read this book, I could just feel my eyes dilate as my brain's pleasure centers lit up. Synaptic hedonism is happening for me, friend. Mm. No? You didn't get the same? No. So she's not sure what's happening. It, it, like it, it turns into a proper gothic, almost like ghost story at this point. Mm. And um, she asks Mrs. Fairfax, the housekeeper, what is going on? And Mrs. Fairfax blames the late night laughter on one of the servants, Grace Poole. Jane quickly finds Grace Poole to be a really odd character, so she's a bit of a drinker. She doesn't really talk that much, but occasionally, and whenever she's out of the room, Jane will hear her doing her disturbing laugh somewhere <laughs> in the house. That's that me, is a great plot point. Yes, that is a good point. She's puffing on her pipe. You love a woman yeah, who smokes a pipe. Yeah, yep. something moving about it, even when it's Grace Poole. Especially when it's Grace Poole. Apart from that, Jane's life kind of as a governess just kind of gets going, doesn't it? She has a kind of her pedagogy, which I think is funny, when she describes Adele. She had no great talents, no marked traits of character, no peculiar development of feeling or taste. She made reasonable progress, entertained for me a vivacious, though perhaps not very profound, affection. She inspired a degree of attachment sufficient to make us both content in each other's society. <laughs> God. Yeah. She just thought, this, this little girl is a basic bitch, but nice enough. Yeah, imagine reading that in your kid's school report. <laughs> <laughs> Adele always speaks French as well, which is funny. I think she's always kind of like, and Charlotte just makes her, Charlotte Bronte, that is, makes her, doesn't translate to her or anything, which is funny. Uh, all that kind of like. Yep. Adele's always like, Vin de de faire foudre! <laughs> and, uh, uh, James was like, yes, dear. We, oui, dear. Okay, one winter day. After a few kind of happy months there, Jane goes for a bit of a walk. A man is approaching on a horse. Uh, she can kind of hear it coming. And uh, it slips on the ice, and Jane rushes over to help. Who is it? 
you know, your friend of mine, Mr. Rochester. It's a kind of emasculating moment, isn't it, that he falls off the horse when they first meet. This is a quote, not but written by me, but by my, my colleague over here. He's dark and ugly hot. You know the type. <laughs> um, I sure you, do. Uh, I think that would sound way cooler if it were read by an American. No, maybe. Uh, Jane initially thinks it could be a... <laughs> You're not even going to give me the opportunity. No. Jane initially thinks it could be a guy trash, which is a kind of ghost. I was just wondering if... Or you. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. Guy trash, it seems like a... a I know that's not intended in the 1840s, but it's funny that he, because he is that, isn't he? He is guy trash. Guy trash is your kid rock style rap alter ego. Time for the Bronte heads out there. <laughs> Rochester, although we don't know it's Rochester, he kind of asks some misleading questions. He's like, oh, whose house is that? It's his house. Do you know Rochester? He's Rochester. Is he at home? No. He's, he's on his ass on the ice. Yeah, he's on yeah. His, yeah. He and Jane have a few mind games. Yeah, he's already, like, from minute one, he's giving us this sort of, like, dark, brooding, minor psychological warfare sort of deal, right? But then also clownish. He's like a kind of weird blend of Byronic and clownish. Well, yeah, I, I mean, he's kind of... He's like Heathcliff with a low battery. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once Jane gets back to Thornfield Hall, uh, she finds out that it, that was indeed Rochester. He's a kind of grizzled, irritable guy. And he and Jane have a kind of weird uh, sort of attraction, but also uh, they don't really understand each kind other. Of distaste, yeah, for one another. Uh, they look at a bit of her. She she's a, she draws, doesn't she, Jane? That's one of her accomplishments. They, they look at it, and uh, she talks about her life at Lowood, and just is like, "Fuck Brocklehurst, I don't like him." Rochester gets a bit drunk at one point, and he's like, "Jane, you think I'm handsome?" And she's like, "No," and. You know, there's obviously a frisson there. Yeah, he says, do you think I'm handsome? She says, not really, and it is hot. I think it's the fact that she is so immediately in love with him that she tells him the truth. Hmm. In Venus Veritas. Yeah, pretty good. So one night as Jane goes to sleep, she hears Grace Poole's creepy goblin laugh, um, and it sounds like Grace Poole is laughing directly through Jane's keyhole, which is fucking creepy. So Jane thinks, there's fuckery afoot. I am getting Mrs. Fairfax involved. So she leaves her bedroom only to see smoke billowing from another room. Mr. Rochester's Hello. bedroom. Hello, what's this? Yeah, symbolism might yeah. be a little on the nose. Smoldering. So she bursts in, which is kind of sexy. She's in her nightgown. And she sees that he is fast asleep and his bed curtains have been set aflame. And Jane manages to save him and put out the fire. She throws some water, you know, on, on the situation. And after she explains what's just happened, he swears her to silence and he says, I need to go visit the third floor, night night. And Jane goes back to bed. Ask more questions, Jane, Jesus Christ. So all the servants sweep this incident under the rug and they won't talk to Jane about it, which is when I would nope out of this house so fast it would make your head spin. I mean, if an arsonist ghost cackled through my bedroom keyhole every night, I would not only let them burn the house down, I would then salt the ground where the house stood. Then Rochester goes off one night to a party. And this, this was sort of in the days when you go off to a party, that means you're going to spend a month at somebody else's house, right? Like, that's what party meant. So... Oh, you'd feel like crap after that, wouldn't you? I'm just thinking about how shit you'd feel. 
What a modern everyone, everyone must have just felt so shitty in the like every time before like the last maybe fifty years. What everyone's hitting the sauce really hard for a solid not, month. Not just that though, just also just like being in some kind of weird bed for a month. And, oh yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Jane asks Mrs. Fairfax, who's the sort of resident gossip, who's going to be at this party. You know, so uh, Jane's clearly a little threat, and she's like, mm, my not really boyfriend is going off to some party without me. And this is when we get our first taste of Blanche Ingram, the society belle. So Mrs. Fairfax gives us the deets, and she really pours lemon juice on this wound. Because <laughs> she doesn't know that Jane and Mr. Rochester have kind of a weird whatever. Oh, of course she does. Do, do you think? I mean, no, she might. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just contradictory for the sake of it. Yeah. I like it. So Blanche is rich, she's beautiful and accomplished, and just queen shit of fuck mountain and jane is consumed with jealousy and this is such a relatable bit that is actually really difficult to read so jane who is such a little freak she tortures herself by drawing a sketch of her own face as accurately and with as little flattery as possible and then drawing a hugely flattering portrait of what she imagines blanche must look like jane you masochistic little you are a heartbeat away from giving yourself bangs and rochester has just gone for a really long time and jane has got it bad for him it's oh i hate this bit this bit it's so good but it's it's awful then rochester sends word that he is coming back to thornfield hall and he's bringing all these fine biddies home with him and the only person who doesn't have to help all the servants get ready for the party is grace Poole who only comes downstairs to smoke her pipe, have a beer, and then go back up to the third floor where she does something. And yet there are two other weird things that Jane notices, right? Grace is the highest- Um, 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 I've been going through the accounts of the house and I've noticed that Grace Poole is the highest paid. Continue. <laughs> I'm sorry, were you quiet for too long? You can't let a woman speak that long yeah, without- Yeah, pretty okay. much, yeah. Showing my sorry. place yeah. in- your office. Yeah, thank you for remembering. Yeah, so Grace is the highest paid servant in the house for doing nothing that Jane can figure out. And none of the other servants really remark on what she does. So what is this situation, right? Is Grace Poole blackmailing Rochester somehow? Does she have some sort of secret chore? Just like, what is this setup? Horror of horrors. Rochester, he's back. And he's brought a bunch of people with him, including Blanche Ingram. And Blanche Ingram, uh, you know, as, as Jane predicted from her drawings, she is just comely as shit. And Jane takes one look at her and goes, oh, come on! She's got a neck like a pillar. That's, I hate that! That's what when... all little boys like, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very Doric. Um, <laughs> Jane sees Rochester and Blanche kind of flirt for a bit, and then is actually invited at Rochester's insistence to kind of attend one of these sort of gatherings uh, one evening uh, instead of being up, stuck upstairs with Adele. Adele also is very keen to go to the party, isn't she? I don't know what I'm saying. Me, madame, me, Jane. <laughs> je veux, je veux visiter la, le boom parce que j'aime bien le, <laughs> les soirées. C'est merdique ici. 
Your face. Mademoiselle Jane, c'est merdique ici. Je veux. Je veux aller au. Au boom. I think Freddie people still say boom. That's probably a bit dated. Daniel, what do you think people in other offices think we're doing here? It's obvious. Jane's at the, the do. Blanche is there. And Jane and Blanche. They eye each other up. They exchange stink eyes, don't they? Jane gives her just a sort of silent stink eye. Uh, whereas Blanche kind of accompanies it with talk about how shitty governesses are and how uh, they're expensive and clearly weirdos, which is probably true. They they both know. They both clock each other immediately. Yeah. What? Fuck you, Rochester. You know exactly what well, you're doing. All the ladies love me. Oh, just how how low is your self-esteem that you need Very to do low. this? <laughs> <laughs> so he's got all these kind of gorgeous ladies around him. And Jane. <laughs> Jane's there too, but she and Rochester have a sort of uh, moment, you know, like uh, like this is something, this is all, yeah, as we've been saying, a kind of way of impressing her. The soirees start to get stranger and stranger, There's, they have a kind of, they do little kind of plays and things, don't they? Um, as, I, as I was saying before, this is when like people would stay at your house for a month, so every night they have a different little like themed get together. Do you think they had a Tartan Vickers party? at any point and do people still have those yeah i've been to i've been to one of them just as the bishop of Truro. call back <laughs> you just turned up naked <laughs> you just you committed a sex crime just one of those sorts of parties <laughs> do you know Agnes sorel she was the uh, 15th century mistress of charles the seventh of france i think and she was the one who she had a favorite boob and so she started this court was it one of hers huh? Yes. Right. It was her left one, in fact. Okay. My left or her left? No, or the Charles II's left or her left? Okay. Her left. Right. And so she reinvented court dress where she had, if you look up the Wikipedia page of her, it shows the sort of dress style where she basically had her dresses cut just so her boob was out. I would go as that. Or apple. Very good. Yeah. Sorry, that's, that's, that's cheap. That's cheap comedy. We don't do that here. No, no, no. Parties are getting weirder. They're all doing weird games. The twister mat has been used. Not for its intended purpose. Yeah. Hey, definitely for its intended purpose. Then Rochester has to leave the party temporarily to go to the village nearby on business. When he's away, someone shows up called Mr. Mason, a friend of Rochester's, and said he knew him from Jamaica. Jane's like, oh, I didn't know that Rochester lived in Jamaica. And so that's a little piece of the puzzle. Meanwhile, a gypsy fortune teller comes to the party, and yeah, the We're, word gypsy is being used here primarily because it occurs in the text. Yeah, we, we would normally not use that word, but it's kind of hard to get around when it's quoted so much in the text. Everyone's really excited about the gypsy fortune teller, and uh, she's like, you know, I'll give you a private session each. Blanche Ingram does not like what she hears. She comes out and she's got a real sour puss on. The gypsy fortune teller knows things about them. This is kind of spooky that this gypsy woman knows such intimate details about them. Or she's just been rooting around their bins. Like, this is before micro-shredders have been invented. This is a test run at identity theft. The gypsy then calls Jane in. And Jane tells her straight up that she thinks the gypsy woman's full of it. And the gypsy's like, oh yeah? Well then how can I tell that you're in love with a man who's been ignoring you and you're too proud to demand his attention? <gasps> And Jane's like, yeah, I'm a governess to a young, single, rich dude. And the sky is blue, friend. Stop not, wasting my time. Not that young. 
Young if you're a bloke. <laughs> That's the problem. So Jane and the gypsy woman argue quite a bit back and forth. <laughs> they talk about the sort of like the legitimacy of fortune telling. They talk about Rochester maybe marrying Blanche. And Jane gets kind of hot under the collar, understandably, and declares herself passionate and proud. And she says, you know what? I want to open a school. I am perfectly happy on my own. I don't need to marry a man. I do not need to, quote, sell my soul to buy bliss. Wait. 1840s feminism. I mean, suck it, Edward Bulwer-Lytton and other garbage princes of your generation. And this gypsy fortune teller approves very heartily and says, quote, the play is played out. And then hold on to your fucking seats, people, because the gypsy woman takes off her hat, which apparently had the capacity to change the shape of people's faces because it's Mr. Fucking Rochester in racist drag <laughs> playing weird goddamn mind games with everyone at this party. So just to recap, so we are all on the same page. Rochester, dressed in drag as a culturally insensitive joke next to a room full of people who could easily have recognized him just to manipulate his crush. Jane has done a number on him because we are watching a man unravel before our eyes. Is this hot, Daniel? Because I can't tell anymore. I'm just along for the ride. It's double Pamela, isn't it? It's Yeah. The, we've got the gypsy fortune teller and we've got the Lord of the Manor lustfully going in drag to uh, get with... Get something out yeah, of... Yeah, I don't know. Get yeah, compromising. He's like out Mr. Being Mr. B. Oh my god, yeah. Listen to our Pamela episode, guys. You will not be disappointed. Rochester is really pleased with himself <laughs> after all of this that he managed to fool everybody at this party. I I'm sorry, I'm calling bullshit. This is the dumbest plot point. But <laughs> it's Jane, a really weird bit. It's so... And even Jane is like, well, this was weird. Can I go to bed now? Also, your friend Mr. Mason showed up. And Rochester's like, oh, fucking qua? I'm sorry, who showed up? And so he loses his shit and he says that he wishes he and Jane were alone on an island together and that she's his only true friend. And they basically declare their love for each other in this scene in a very, like, us versus the world sort of way. And there's some sort of really, like, fucked up psychological connection between the two of them. And I dig it, but, like, they're weird people. They're, they're an unhinged couple. Mm -hmm. And then Rochester returns to the party to greet Mr. Mason and whatever is going on there. Track. No, he's taken off. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, he's taken off the hat. Has yeah, he taken off like, the skirts? Ignore me from the next <laughs> The fun is over. Jane wakes up to hear a horrible scream <laughs> in the house. That was pretty horrible. A scream from the third floor. The house all wakes up and they're like, oh, Mr. Rochester, what's going on? And he's like, oh, a servant's had a nightmare, nothing more. <laughs> Sorry, what are you doing to your servants that they have PTSD screaming fits at midnight? What is happening? It might not be him that made them miserable. Mm -hmm. um, Rochester's like, go back to bed. There's nothing to see here. But he's like, Jane, will you literally come and help me? Because there is something to see here, please. And um, they go upstairs to see Mr. Mason. Mason is covered in blood. Yeah, all of a sudden we're in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What the hell is happening yeah. here? His arm's been injured. Jane sort of patches him up. And Rochester goes off and gets the surgeon. Sorry, does Jane know how to like do medical stitches or is she just doing like some embroidery skills on him? Like this, oh, a nice satin stitch will patch you yeah, up. Put his arm in the hoop. <laughs> get going. They get him out of the house. Apparently he's in danger from someone, we assume. 
Grey school. school, who has bitten and stabbed him. Jesus. Um, yeah. And so they, they kind of they, they smuggle Mason out without letting anyone else know. After that, Rochester and Jane go for a little bit of a kind of walk. A sunrise walk. Yeah, that's, to, that's, that's romantic. Uh, so they've had a weird night, and uh, Rochester's like, Ooh, I, oh, I really like Blanche Ingram. She's good looking. I will marry her. And Jane is upset because uh, he knows he's, he's kind of goading her. He's toying with her. I know you're only serving me some sugar-free Heathcliff at the moment, not full-fat Heathcliff, but fuck you all the same, Rochester. He tortures her. He's much more um, psychologically sophisticated. I feel like Heathcliff is just... Heathcliff is much more physically yeah. abusive, but Rochester is like, yeah, you're right, he's, he's more... I don't know if subtle is the right word, because he's not subtle, but he's definitely more sophisticated. Yeah, definitely. A day or so later, the coachman from the Reed's house, so if you remember that's Jane's jerk aunt and cousins, shows up with a message for Jane after all these years. And Jane says in the least believable sentence in the world, I hope no one is dead. Mm. And in fact, her shitbag cousin John is indeed dead after wasting the family fortune. So, you know, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And Mrs. Reed has had a stroke from the shock of losing her precious boy. And all that Mrs. Reed will say is that she must see Jane after all of these years. So Rochester gives Jane some time off and money to travel to see her family. And Jane uses this opportunity sort of heartbrokenly to say that if he's gonna be married to Blanche, Adele's gonna need to be sent away to boarding school because Blanche is clearly. Mais je ne veux pas aller au boarding school parce que je ne sais pas le mot en français pour boarding school. C'est pas juste. What is French for boarding school? Va d'être en coulée chez les Grecs. Okay. Continuez. <laughs> Adele's gonna need to be sent away to boarding school because Blanche clearly has a Baroness Schrader from The Sound of Music vibe going on here and she's not gonna stand for having any kids who aren't her own in the house. So Jane says, you know, hey, I'm gonna need to start looking for another job soon. And Rochester is annoyed. Whoa there. Uh, excuse me, I make the horrible proclamations about your fate here, <laughs> excuse me. Jane visits her dying aunt and they revisit the past a little bit. It's it's kind of um antagonistic as it would be. Yeah, Reed is all like doesn't she almost kinda of say that pretend that she doesn't realise that Jane is Jane and she's kinda of like, Oh I hate that Jane. She was a weird baby. She didn't cry properly and she looked at everybody. So I think the implication is that Mrs. Reed is a madhead. So paranoid about a baby. And then she gives Jane a bombshell. Three years ago. Mrs. Reed got a letter from a distant uncle on the heir side of Jane's family who said that he's a rich old bachelor and he wishes to adopt Jane and leave her his sole heir. Jane heir. Oh, that's a joke that really works well in an audio, audio format, isn't it? Well done. Uh. Uh, sorry, it's such low-hanging comedy. I mean, this podcast is free and people are still going to want their money back. <laughs> So Mrs. Reed wrote back to this uncle and said, Oh, what a shame. Jane's super dead. That's Sorry. That's I can't believe she would do that. She's like, I see Jesus coming for me and I'm scared. And she knows that she has to get this off her chest and, and sort of fix the situation. Jane forgives her and Mrs. Reed dies. And Jane is also able to reconnect with this estranged uncle. So she, she writes him a letter saying, Hey, I'm less dead than previously suspected. <laughs> I would assume if I were this uncle that this is a grift going on, but I guess he's real trusting and that trust is borne out. So well, maybe you're very untrusting. So she's had, she's kind of put all that to rest. 
Jane goes back to Thornfield and discovers that Mr. Rochester has bought a fancy new carriage for the soon-to-be Mrs. Rochester. Oh He's God, gonna get it just, what a kick to the tits. I'm sorry, Jane, this bites. Jane is miserable. Two horsepower, isn't it? Um, or four horsepower, I'm not sure. Uh, how many horses a carriage has. Um, that's a joke. Um, not a very good one, but there we are. That's <laughs> what the material got for me. Rochester's like, oh, uh, far... Hey, poor workman. Uh, yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, Charlotte. Rochester's like, I found you a new job working for a wealthy family in Ireland, and you are to leave within the month. And Jane is very upset, breaks her heart. She confesses her feelings for Rochester, and she says the pain of being around him is too excruciating. I am a free human being with an independent will, which... I now exert to leave you. Oh, Jane, honey, Ireland in the 1840s. I mean, from what I remember, most people are trying to leave the island. I think something about their potatoes? Yes, yeah. Like, uh, read a newspaper, sweetheart. You don't have to go where he tells you. Too soon no, to joke about that. It's not a joke. Yeah, no, That's you're right. It's not yeah. a joke. Don't go to Ireland in 1841. Could have ended up in New York. That'd be exciting. I would love Jane Jane Eyre. Eyre in the American Civil War. <laughs> There's this kind of scene in a garden, isn't there, which um, there's a lot of good kind of nature, sort of vocab or whatever you would call it, description, kind of poetical language. I hear a nightingale warbling in a wood half a mile off. I see Mr. Rochester entering the garden. Jane tries to hide from Rochester, but Ro Rochester's like, no, I'm not getting married unless it's to you. Yep, you Jane Eyre. You are my only true equal. They what the fucking f if somebody proposed to me like this i would kick him in the balls puffin on a cigar forever <laughs> i would kick him in the balls he forever. would love that though. that's the point isn't it rochester likes that sort of treatment no good all right yeah. then gentlemen call i vow to kick him in the balls forever <laughs> they have a kind of a tortured proposal in the garden and uh, jane's like oh maybe you're not joking and she agrees to marry him and that night some <laughs> lightning strikes the big tree in the garden in two. Is that a bit like Tess with the cockerel crowing at her wedding? Is this is this an omen? Can you find the symbolism? Whack the train, the, the tragedy horn in there right now. <laughs> so the next day, Rochester says, you know, he's gonna go collect the family jewels and deck Jane. Family jewels. I just don't think they have family jewels. You are very genitally concerned in this episode. I'm gonna try this again. So the next day, Rochester says he's gonna go into town and collect the family jewels and deck Jane out in all the world's silks and satins. Family jewels. Keep going. He basically insists on a glow up for his new bride. And Jane is really uneasy about this, saying that if she started wearing a lot of finery, she wouldn't be herself anymore. And he's like, wow, that sounds like a Jane problem, not a Rochester <laughs> problem. And there's just a lot of tension about Rochester wanting to dress Jane up, and she just begs him to cool his tits for a minute, but those tits will not be cooled. And they go on this huge shopping spree that embarrasses Jane. So he's there, like, picking out a solid gold tracksuit or whatever, and she's like, I don't know, maybe we could just get some slacks or something. And they're just weirding out all the salespeople in this department <laughs> store of no middle ground. And this relationship isn't off to a bad start or anything. Jane is weirdly ambivalent about getting married, isn't she? All that stuff about seeing the name Jane Rochester in a suitcase and being like, this is a person whom as yet I knew not. 
When I was a kid, I always was like, I don't know how I'm going to achieve this, but I'm going to grow up to be a very beautiful woman and I'm going to get divorced like seven times so I can have a really long monogram on my suitcase. And then I watched a Coen Brothers movie called Intolerable Cruelty and Catherine Zeta-Jones' character has that. And I really felt like... Been beaten to it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a weird dream. I was a weird kid. Yeah. I, most kids were playing princess. I was playing... Divorcee. Four-time French divorcee. It was very important that I was French. Um, you don't appreciate that story at all. Yes, I do, because of because no. of name changing. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because I'm a sellout to my to my sex, of course. Yeah. You can, you don't see me as collecting them like trophies, like a head on the wall. That's funny. Mrs. Fairfax, meanwhile, the housekeeper, is having her melon well and truly twisted by this news. So she basically tells Jane that, assuming Jane hasn't done so already, Jane should absolutely not sleep with Rochester until they're married because, quote, gentlemen in his station are not accustomed to marry their governesses. Always listen to the trusty family retainer. So, we have one of the more famous scenes in the book. She's sleeping and a dark woman sneaks into her bedroom and tries on her wedding veil, looks at herself in Jane's mirror and then rips the veil in twain, stomping Ooh. on it. Jane's dreams are getting real feminist and real roid ragey. <laughs> Jane is kind of like half asleep and she kind of wakes up to find that her veil really was ruined. Ooh, that's some Freddy Krueger shit. I would never sleep again. She, she tells Rochester about it. He's horrified and he's like, oh, it's probably Grace Poole. Or you were dreaming, he does a lot of gaslighting, doesn't he? Don't worry, it was just a mental terror. And then he says, I'll tell you about why we have Grace Poole on the staff, but only a year and a day after we're married. Um, oh, ask some questions now, Jay. And let's have the bit where the, let's have the bit where Jane describes the figure that she saw. Its face was fearful and ghastly to me. Oh, sir, I never saw a face like it. It was a discoloured face. It was a savage face. This ghost, sir, was purple. The lips were swelled and dark. The brow furrowed. The black eyebrows widely raised over the bloodshot eyes. It's like the foul German spectre, the vampire. Despite all of this, the wedding day comes, and they go to the church, and they get married. The ceremony starts. And when it gets to the speak now or forever hold your peace bit, a voice shouts from the back, stop the wedding! Everyone turns to see a man they don't know. And this man is like, I am a lawyer named Mr. Briggs, and I know that Rochester is already married. So 15 years ago, Mr. Rochester married a woman named Bertha... Mason. Yeah, that's right. Mr. Mason, the guy who got stabbed, is Rochester's brother-in-law. That's why Rochester... Thank you. That's why Rochester was all upset when he heard that Mr. Mason had shown up when he wasn't home. So where's the wife? Everyone's asking. Still living, says Mr. Briggs, and living in Thornfield Hall. What? <laughs> There's a goat in here, but... <laughs> Yeah, everyone's like, what are you talking about? That is ridiculous. Everyone around here knows Mr. Rochester. Everyone knows Thornfield Hall. There is no wife there. He's a respected man in the community. Exactly. And then Mr. Mason shows up at the church and says, it's true, Mr. Briggs is right. Bertha Mason, my sister, is there. She stabbed me last April. <laughs> and Rochester's like, okay, you got me. The jig is up. In fact, the first thing he says is, quote, Bigamy 
is an ugly word, <laughs> which made me laugh so hard when I read that. He's a weird guy, isn't he? Yeah. Rod, uh, y y was it the yeah. was it the racist drag or what, like what was it? And then Rochester spills the tea. Fifteen years ago, he was talked into marrying a Creole woman from Jamaica. So there's some sort of you know there's a racial connotation here in this book, and he married her basically because of her money. And after the wedding, Rochester found out that Bertha's family had a severe sort of like mental health issue going back generations, and that Bertha's mother was, quote, a mad woman and a drunkard. Whose isn't? Bertha soon followed her mother in that direction. He and Bertha very quickly realized that they're not going to get on. I found her nature wholly alien to mine, her tastes obnoxious to me, her cast of mind common, low, and narrow, and singularly incapable of being led to anything higher, expanded to anything larger. What a pygmy intellect she had, and what giant propensities. Um, having sex a lot, I think, is part of... Uh, yep. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't like that. <laughs> but it's not with him, that might... There's the implication, and again, these are these are all sort of racially charged by mm. Charlotte Bronte that because Bertha is not wholly white, there's madness, there's you know violence, there's promiscuity. It's this is this is a troubling element yeah, of the book. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. pretty. It's pretty racist and ableist and just bad all yeah, around. Yeah, all of the above. Basically, Rochester thought he was getting a trophy wife, but he was barely getting a participation ribbon <laughs> wife. And the important thing to note is that. It was illegal at this point in British history to divorce an insane person. So what's Rochester to do? Like, he's stuck with her forever. He can't stand her. So he decides to lock his wife up, not actually in the attic, as popular culture has led us to believe. So if you know this story... Gilbert and Gooba, you've done a real mischief on the literary scholars yeah, of the world. Yeah, there, there's a famous scholarly article called The Mad Woman in the Attic that is in reference to this. She's not actually in the attic because Jane goes up in the attic at one point. She's actually kept on the third floor and she's been kept under the watch of Grace Poole who exists purely to wrangle Bertha and act as her jailer. That's why she's paid so much and that's why she kind of keeps herself to herself. Mm. So Rochester telling us all this at his wedding then takes the whole wedding party. Come on everybody. Yeah, come, on, on. come on, come on, come on. Let's, let's all go and see my first wife. This is the day of my wedding. Come on, everybody come. Everybody, I want a whole house to come upstairs and see this. Come on, the caterers, get the caterers to come. <laughs> this is the best wedding I've ever been to. Can I just say that I'm pleased that we finally got the story from Rochester's side. I'm sick of Jean Reese and all that Antoinette Cosway bullshit. Oh, poor old Bertha, Rochester was horrible. Finally, we're hearing the other side of the story. You know if this makes it into the podcast, I'm gonna get panicked emails from you going, the thing that was clearly a joke, what, I'm so nervous. <laughs> this is gonna get into the podcast, I love the book. Um, <laughs> Finally, Rochester has been vindicated. But yes, but you're oh, saying yeah, this now, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I guarantee you in a week and a half, you are going to be sending me panicked text messages at two in the morning going, take this out. So they all, everybody goes up, the whole wedding party's there, they're all getting an eye full of Bertha. It's a kind of a humiliating and horrible experience for this Bertha. Is, this is a this hard This is a really chapter. disturbing this is, bit, this yeah. This is a hard bit. Jane is like, whether a beast or a human being, one could not at first sight tell. She's looking at her <laughs> opposite number, the, the first Mrs. Rochester. Bertha has wild dark hair, is on all fours, and growls and shrieks when she sees Rochester. She gets so upset to be near him, 
that they have to tie her down with a rope. It turns out that it was Bertha who was doing the laughing. Uh, laughing. She was the one who set Rochester's bed on fire and she ripped Jane's veil. The plan was that Rochester would just like pretend to marry Jane and uh, after a year and a day after their wedding, uh, once she's been, you know, sexually ruined, he and they would have a kid and stuff, he'd be like, well, actually, you're not really officially married to me. Ha ha ha. Well, we can put that behind us, can't we, dear? What a fuck boy he is. So his logic is my first marriage didn't really take. So the universe is like, uh, have a mulligan? Are you fucking kidding me? Everyone leaves. The band leaves. Uh, the celebrant leaves. I've done that. <laughs> Jane, Jane is sad. She takes off her wedding dress and is like, I wish I was dead. Jane is like, well, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to stay here. You know, I've got some self-respect. I'm going to remove myself from Thornfield and I'll never see Rochester again. Rochester's like, oh, come on. Please stay. Be my mistress. I'll set you up in the south of France. We'll live there. No one will know anything different. Uh, and Jane's like, ooh, that does sound alright. And then she's like, no! I deserve better than this. I don't want to live in France. Rochester cannot figure out how to get sex from this woman. She's a real mystery, our Jane. A real pubic's cube, if you will. <laughs> so Jane leaves in the middle of the night in the most spectacularly dramatic fashion. And she's just tripping and stumbling over the fields, running with no friend or money or place to go. I've taken nothing but the clothes on my back that I arrived in. You know, that sort of whole, like, nonsense deal. I would, I'd just be stealing everything that yeah, wasn't. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> I like, I was almost mistress of this house. It, I'm due. At least take a packed lunch. So Jane stumbles around this tiny little town, exhausted and starving, and she's just like, she's really pathetic. She's stirring in her own personal, for a dollar a day, you can feed this child commercial. And so Jane starts knocking on the doors of random houses, looking for work or food, and she's, al she's almost always rejected begging equally poor strangers for their last crumb of soot pie or whatever bullshit. We're in Derbyshire, right? I was imagining it was all Bakewell tarts. That joke would be so funny if I've ever been to Derbyshire. With her strength failing, Jane tries a final house, and the, they, they sort of close the door on her, and she just sort of sits there knowing she's near death from starvation, and she says, quote, I can but die, and I believe in God. Let me try to wait his will in silence. And this statement is overheard by the master of the house, Sinjin Rivers, that is spelled St. John, it's pronounced Sinjin. Why? I don't know. No further questions. Mm. Sinjin, who's a vicar, is coming home late. He sees Jane and he sort of takes pity on her religiosity and is like, hey, I'll take you in. So Sinjin is this, he's this like beautiful young man, right? He's like this beautiful, you know, young Apollo. Here. Imagine a really handsome vicar. That's Sinjin. Sinjin lives with his two sisters. So Jane gets on really well with the sisters, even if Sinjin is a little bit of an evangelical twit, but he does give her a job at the local school. And Jane is, you know, she's content enough there. She tries to find peace in her dusty little existence, you know, clapping the chalkboard erasers and things. But Rochester is just one of those boyfriends who ruins you for life. So like from this point on, food just turns to ashes in Jane's mouth. The Rivers family, they get news that their Uncle John has died and has not left them his fortune of £20,000. Which they had been expecting. Yes. Eventually some solicitors tracked Jane down. Jane's uncle, John Eyre, died and left her a cool 20,000 Gs. 
That Wait, sounds familiar. It's a G a thousand. Yes. Right. Oh, Dan. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's the same guy. The Rivers and she are like cousins. She's like, oh, well, that's good news, and I can split the 20 grand with you all, my new family, who actually are my family. Hooray! Um, <laughs> and, they're, and they're like, oh, oh you really mustn't. You really must. We really should not do it. You couldn't. But then they take it. Sinjin's like, here's a thought, Jane. When we get married, when we get hitched, I'm going to become a missionary in India. Why don't you come along with me? I don't love you. I love another woman. We have a kind of very extended detail of the uh, description of that woman. Jane clearly fancies her too. Uh, <laughs> we, we've not, I'm not going to bother to read it, but it's there. She's got nice eyebrows. That's the main thing I remember. She's a bit of a sort of um, spoiled type, but ultimately is a hottie. Um, <laughs> nevertheless. There, there is a word that comes naturally <laughs> to you. Sinjin is like, yeah, of course I love this woman. She even loves me. It's a sort of weird situation, but she's not practical to be a missionary's wife. You, however, Jane, would be perfect in that position. Listen, sexually and vocationally, Jane, you are suited for missionary. Hey, you just ripped off my joke. I just said you're suited for that position. Mine was much more subtle. God damn it. It was so subtle it clearly yeah. wasn't funny. Oh, that one. Yeah. Um, I'm doing the old head, hand over the head gesture. I mean, should I should I show myself out? It's my Please. It's my office, but no, I feel no, like... No, it's my office, do it out. Jane's like... Uh, yeah, I'll go, but I don't want to be your wife. I'll be your sister. And he's like, no. I'm into that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> he's like, no, you can't do that. Sinjin, for some reason, I don't know why, but Sinjin fascinated me as a character. So let's, uh... What a shot. Talk, talk a bit about Sinjin now. Well, he he's basically Rochester's light twin. Because, I mean, Sinjin is really relentless in the way that Rochester is relentless. He pesters Jane constantly about when she's going to marry him, and she's like, on the 15th of never, friend! When St. John proposes to her, this is just an idle point, when Rochester proposes to her, it's in a kind of blossoming garden, St. John does it in a kind of weird northern craggy waste. I don't know if we're meant to sort of... If that's something that people could uh, think about. Well, after Jane rejects him, he becomes no longer flesh but marble. We've had a few other marble people, haven't we? With Brocklehurst as a black pillar, and Blanche Ingram has a throat like a pillar, so clearly... You know, there's a lot of stone people walking around in North mm. of England. Uh, so these are my thoughts on Sinjin. <laughs> in this TED Talk, I will be extremely... Boring about Sinjin. So one night, Jane, who is still obsessing about Rochester and what's happened to him, she, she has no idea, gets this weird physical twinge that she can't explain, <laughs> and she hears a disembodied voice calling her name, and she knows that this is Rochester's voice calling her from somewhere in the ether. I did not know that you could slide into somebody's DMs through the cosmos, but here we are. And Jane somehow knows that Rochester is in trouble, and she vows to go find him. So she's like, bye, Sinjin. Good luck with your whole deal. I'm off to find my fuckboy of a boyfriend. I still love him. So she flies back to Thornfield, only to find a smoking ruin on the ground. You what? I'm sorry, who let Michael Bay on set? Turns out... Surprising no one, because it's happened like 50 times already. Bertha broke out of her room one night after Br Grace Poole started hitting the sauce, 
And this time Bertha was successful in setting the house on fire in a full straw dog's revenge rampage. Good on her, I think, yeah. 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 That happened. I mean, come yeah. on, we're all, we're all rooting for Bertha, actually, here, aren't we? Rochester managed to wake up, he got everyone out of the house safely, and he tried to get Bertha out too, but she, Bertha had climbed up onto the roof, and Rochester followed her <laughs> up there. Jeez, I know somebody who's getting her presidential fitness award. Is that like a Duke of Edinburgh? I don't know. Okay, I haven't got either. <laughs> you? But you're always... <laughs> yeah, doing squat thrusts and doing things. Doing the yeah. rowing machines and yeah. handstands and what have you. I'm on the rowing machine. It's a different thing. I'd love that. Imagine that machine you could argue with. Rochester's up on the roof trying to, you know, save Bertha, and she jumps off the roof and dies. And Rochester manages just to get back outside, but he's seriously injured. He is now completely blind, and he's also lost a hand. His eyeball fell out. <laughs> Please, can we talk about his eyeball falling out? Go for it, friend. That's it. Rochester's eyeball fell out. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But anyway, this is this is again another masculinity reading. So much like when he slipped and fell on the ice, this one. His balls fall on there. Is that what you're saying? There's a certain castration reading there of he's lost vision, he's lost articulation in his hand. You know, his hands. I it's, dig. Yeah. Yeah, you dig. You know what's going on. You know it. You're feeling it. You're feeling the sting of it. Bishop of Truro, etc., etc., etc. Rochester didn't die. He's alive. But he's kind of a bit of a recluse, isn't he? He lives somewhere different. Jane tracks him down. They have a tearful reunion. Or do they? Initially, Jane pretends to be a servant. She comes in, serves him his tea, and he's all like, ooh, you're not my normal servant. The roles are reversed. We've had the gypsy prank. Now Jane is the pranker. Now she's rich. Now she's able-bodied. I mean, she always was, but <laughs> he's not is the point. She's calling the shots. I'm in charge now. They have a tearful reunion uh, after she says all that stuff. Although she's a, he's a little bit disturbed to hear about Sinjin, isn't? And he's like, oh, ma jeune encore. He's a he's a handsome devil and young and unrelated the dream. I mean, it's a little rich that he's getting his knickers in a twist over Sinjin when he had a fucking attic wife. Also, just Rochester should never marry Jane. They have too much baggage now. Can can you imagine? Every fight they have is, oh Jane, I'm sorry. Is this the about the attic wife again? Okay, fine. We can name our fifth child Helen Burns as well. <laughs> like, just, uh, he will never have equal footing with her. That's what she wants, I think. And, I mean, maybe uh, he's into it. Yeah, yeah. All right, I let's, think that's, let's, that's let's the game. Let's slightly retweak my reading of that, where that's hot instead of sad. Yeah, uh, can be both. Usually is. Then we get the famous lines, Reader, I married him. She becomes his carer and uh, live-in chum and wife. Uh, and eventually he starts to be able to see again, that's nice. Yeah, it? he gets partial sight but back. But his hand grows back, so it's all, <laughs> yeah. everything's all going He's pretty He's not well. like a starfish, he does not grow any appendages back. They have a son. The key appendages are still perfectly fine. They have a son, they live happily ever after. Oh Hooray. my god, you are such a man, as long as the works it does well not in terms matter. of having a son i think it matters right i think every bloke who reads this book is like oh thank god his dick wasn't damaged oh thank god <laughs> i was wondering is that as long as the <laughs> cut my head off as long as the <laughs> still works <laughs> the story is over it's done it's, it's done are we done yeah we're sure. done
need to talk about how this was dedicated to William Thackeray, the famous author. Go on. I did not realize that if you dedicate a book to somebody, you are supposed to contact them in advance and let them know. She really admired William Thackeray, who had written all these great books of the day. He was this very celebrated author, and she just thought, God, I admire him so much, I'm going to dedicate this book to him. What she did not realize, which all of London knew, but she, up in her reclusive home, did not, was that William Thackeray locked up his mad wife. And so he read this book, as did everyone, and thought this was an enormous slight. And it caused, she was mortified. She was mortified when she found out she had no idea. Imagine how his wife felt. Very unhappy, I imagine. (laughs) Anyway, shall we cast this? Please. Okay. This is a thriller. It's really vibrant. It's really sinister. There was a lot that was very visual for me, almost anticipating cinema. And I was thinking, even though he doesn't really direct any period pieces that I could think of, I would love to see an Alfred Hitchcock version of this film. And sort mm. of, but I think he would just, he would have so much fun playing with all the different creepy set pieces, the Red Room, you know, mm. the Thornfield, mm. Lowood, all of these different places. I think he could really... We're talking Vertigo period Hitchcock as well. I think when it, everything gets a bit weirder and it's yeah. a bit more open-ended and there's a lot of like unresolved kind of aesthetic and narrative motifs. Yeah. yeah. And I, the, for casting... James Stewart in the eponymous... Come on. I'm a reader. I'm, I'm married. <laughs> So Audrey Hepburn, who would have been 26 in 1955, she always sort of read as younger than her years. She's very thin and very bird-like, very girl next door. Um, Richard Burton, who read as a lot older, he would have been 30, but he always read as like 45 Mm. as Rochester. He's very dark and brooding. And then as Blanche Ingram, Julie Newmar would have been a perfect Blanche Ingram. She's six feet tall. She is gorgeous. She's terrifying. You don't know Who's Bertha? Because... There's a lot of talk about how Bertha's really, really tall and big. I think Julie Newmar as double casting. Ooh, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? Wow, that's a great idea. And Mr. Mason, played by our good friend, James Mason, because they're both called Mason. (laughs) Okay, let's get to some analysis. Oh, God, I'm exhausted after this. This... Yeah, me too. It's heavy stuff. Sorry. That's all right. Don't worry. It's a bit of a bildungsroman, isn't it? I think that's the main autobiographical element. If, I mean, obviously, they're not necessarily the same thing, but we're in sort of David Copperfield country, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Oh, I was born at a hard time. Look at me now. I'm on top of the world. I married him. You know, I'm the one calling the shots. It's kind of it's a classic Victorian narrative in that respect, although mm-hmm. there are obviously certain freakish elements that distinguish it from maybe more mainstream Victorian literature. And it's, it's an autobiography. There, there are some elements, sort of like factual details that overlap. But I like that it's more an autobiography in spirit, this sort of tiny woman who feels really alien and isolated. It's kind of, it's got kind of three main poles to it, hasn't it? And, they, and she's strong on all of them. So there's the kind of main sort of romance slash gothic narrative. That's obviously like kind of very compelling, all the secret wife and stuff. But then also there's the psychological interiority. That's really good, isn't it? All the kind of, like you're saying, the kind of sense of passion that Bronte really like, uh, conveys that with like a, the, with <laughs> a great like degree of originality and stuff, you know. There's a real sense of like yeah. a, a rage that you don't really get, especially in the literature of that period. I would love to I've talked to you about this for ages, but I would love to do a course on women's rage yeah. in media and this book would be a wonderful candidate for that because Jane is so angry. Yeah. It's cathartic reading this. Yeah, I can yeah, see yeah, I can yeah. see why so many women connect with this because just the the sense of injustice and frustration and 
aloneness that having to suck it up as well. Yes, yeah. yes, and mm. yeah, uh, on on a lot of different registers. Yeah, class based, gender based, you know, all of these different things on beauty standards, things like that. But the final, the final other strength of the book is the that all the kind of nature writing and and the kind of the kind of impressionistic stuff. There's a lot of that, isn't there, about the kind of the landscape and the gardens and the moors and the house and the, there's a kind of real. Uh, sensual kind of uh, quality to it as well. Well, the, uh, the, the Brontes are, I think we talked about this in the Wuthering Heights episode a little bit, they're slightly old-fashioned in this regard. You can see that they've been kept in the ass end of nowhere because they're kind of still romantic. Yeah, they're, they're like Wordsworth. They're, yeah. they're definitely subscribing to a trend that kind of fell out of fashion 30 years ago. Mm. They're reinvigorating romanticism when it's really in its death knells, when everything else is sort of very urban. Yeah. yeah. Like literature moved to the city. But she even does, Charlotte Bronte does it more than Emily Bronte does. I was surprised by how little nature writing there was in Wuthering Heights, which is very much yeah. about like a the dynastic feuding. This and has loads of like just kind of Jane looking at trees and mountains and crags and just being like, Ugh. What about the year in which this was written along with the other big works? What was happening? What's going on? And why is this book in very much that vein? What? Why everybody was having revolutions across Europe? Not in England and Russia. I'll leave you to work out why uh, that No, was. no, no, no. There, we came very hey, close. But we there came, wasn't a revolution. There, was there, there, there. there was a chartist. Well, oh, right, like, well, there was a chartist kind of polite chartist meeting. There, there was a, ch oh, but I mean, Queen Victoria and Albert fled London because there was a chartist meeting and uh, a meeting. Yeah, there was a, there was a protest. gave everyone, made everyone special constables. I know about all that. Yeah. But, but it's not the same as. No, you're right. It's yeah. not the same as a proper revolution. But there was certainly the potential for that. But, uh, I mean, Jane talks a lot about, you know, I'm, what was the thing she said where I am a creature of individual will and I use that will to leave you and you and I are equals in the sight of God and she, I mean, there's a lot of like, for, especially for a woman, a lower mm. class woman saying this to an upper class man, this is hot stuff. Like this is not hot in the sexual sense, but like incendiary. Yeah. I kind of took it... <laughs> slightly the other way or like kind of thought that it went in a certain different direction to maybe what you associate with 1848. I thought she's almost a bit of a kind of Ayn Rand type I kind of thought. There's a lot of like you know we're both cre creatures of pure you know will and brilliance you and, you and me Rochester. Sinjin she says the same thing there's that bizarre bit about Sinjin where he does a kind of uh, fire and brimstone speech Brimstone, Sinjin, and he's like all. She's like all men of men of talent, whether they be men of feeling or not, whether they be zealots or aspirants or despots, provided only they be sincere, have their sublime moments when they subdue and rule. And there's a lot of kind of like awful peasants, awful mentally ill people, awful Caribbean people, awful European people. Adele, what a cretin! You know, there's a kind of there's yeah. a lot of like I feel like there's a kind of libertarian thing rather than a kind of. Uh, the other kind of... But, I mean, in 1848, both of those were radical, right? Like, yes, but, yes. But it was hard to differentiate between the kind of Nietzschean individualism on the one side and then the kind of Marxian socialism on oh, the other. Oh, yeah, for sure. Both things can be true. And that, that leads me to another point, which is that there is a lot of racism in this book. Yeah. So, I mean, people talk a lot about, like, oh, today we're trying to read in racism into all these great works of literature. No, this stuff Isn't is <laughs> yeah. very present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just find it really funny that people seem to be upset that we're now sort of acknowledging the, how deeply ingrained colonialism is and stuff. And I'm like, this is this has absolutely been present the whole it's weird. time. It is weird, though, isn't it? Because it's kind of 
sort of, not maybe not a two-way street or something, but some kind of paradoxical thing going on, because the Masons are obviously slave owners, aren't they? That's yeah. the point, that the Masons are the imperialist agents, and the Rochester is almost kind of like marrying into that to get that kind of money. But there's a racial reading of Bertha there as yeah, well. Yeah, but it's almost like, like the, by, just by being in contact with yeah, that world, it's kind contagion. of tarnished them. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and it's almost, to some extent, Rochester... They almost need to like cleanse him with fire and mm. burn the whole project yeah, yeah, down yeah. and start anew with him sort of humbled for there. There's very much a sort of contagion, this idea of ableism, you know. He, yeah, definitely loads he, of that. Yeah, yeah there's, really there's, nasty stuff. It's, that it's, yeah. th there, that's a really ugly, I don't even want to say undercurrent because it's pretty on yeah, the surface here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this book is great and it's it's feminist and angry and I love it, but there is a lot of really ugly shit in this book that is pretty gross to read. Yeah, yeah. Jane as well, that's kind of heightened by Jane being associated with Englishness, isn't she? There's a lot of kind of like stuff about her coming from the rocks and kind of... she's the fairies! Just, yeah, yeah, she's the, yeah, yeah, like yeah. has been this kind of native-born, quote-unquote, creature. And but Rochester is sort of... he's that weird liminal character where he's, um... He's very English, but he's sort of um, always described in very Orientalist terms. She's mm. always talking about him as some sort of... Turk as some sort of oriental yeah, despot. He's yeah. a sultan over a harem. She uses a lot of language that is sort of racially charged and sexually charged. So yeah. there's a certain that there are like certain parts of the world that are like no go. You know, the, the Caribbean, absolutely not. Turkey, though, hmm, girl, that's interesting. You know, yeah, yeah and and that shows that you can have racism on different metrics here, yeah, where yeah, you have definitely. the the blatant racism of Bertha. And then something like Rochester, where he's being fetishized as a sort of oriental but, figure. But, it, but, it, but, it, but I think it does figure as a kind of shortcoming as well. It almost anticipates yes, various yes. shortcomings. But it's also a strength. But it's like that's sexy. The kind of, yeah, it's exactly. sexy that's the, too. He, he's a kind of... He's more an object of her desires than the way around, I think. That's the weird thing about Rochester. That's what's yeah. radical about the portrayal of their relationship, is that he is the kind of, uh, not the trophy, but like a kind of, yeah, a figure of but I objectification. Like no, yeah, it's cool, yeah. We don't, for Victorian novels, we don't get a lot of the female gaze here, and yeah. Jane Oh, and this is full of it, she, yeah. Well, I mean, Mrs. Reed says, you were nothing but a baby that, like, stared at people, and it creeped me out, and, like, yeah, this whole thing is told through Jane's perspective. She's the one that desires. That's pretty yeah no cool. definitely yeah i mean yeah. it's no of course what yeah. she sees and how that's described is kind of fucked up but like it's yeah. still it's still neat to get as a final point can i just point out that here we have a school called lowood and in wuthering heights written by her sister by charlotte bronte's sister emily in the same year the narrator's named lockwood what there's Lowood and Lockwood. What is that about? Does Agnes Grey, which was also written by their third sister in this same year, is there there's there a similarly named character or place? Um, High Log. Isn't there a place called High Log? No. I don't. I, I've, it's been so long since I've read Agnes Grey. Made out. Don't know. You you really you looked me dead in the eye, and I bought it. I believed. <laughs> I you've never even read that book, no. have you? <laughs> Uh, and I knew that. As you're saying that, I'm like, I don't think Daniel's read that. And it, so now for some advice. Pay attention and take the most notes on the first quarter of a book, because this is where the author is really doing all of the hard work here. This is where they set up a lot of the themes and the characterization. So even if it takes you a lot longer to get into the book itself, 
pay the most attention and sort of read the most actively here in this first quarter and then you can sort of ease into it once you're like okay right they've set up all these big themes i've only ever read the first quarter of any book i've ever read i just work out the rest and so far i've been bang wow. on the money <laughs> i knew that there was going to be a missing wife and a fire and you know. so the clue to the next episode this was a text suggested to us by a listener last season and it has a trope that I adore in any context. A fist fight at a funeral. Um, I want to play too. Uh, go, oh please. I'm so excited, I could eat a crocodile about this next text. Daniel, you could eat anything at any time. That's the line from that bit, I, yeah. I, I know. Okay. Please write into our email with any suggestions or just like stories, comments, whatever. We like getting emails from people or tweet us. Um, and please subscribe wherever you listen, rate, review us as well. It just helps us out. I know everyone begs for that on podcasts, but like, just, just do it. Seriously, just do it. (laughs) I'm sick of being nice about this. Look guys, I have, I have an ex-boyfriend who has a podcast and I feel like we're in slight competition here and I just really want to grind him into the dust. Just don't do it for us. Do it for spite. Uh, and just yeah thanks tune in next time adieu (laughs) thanks for listening to save me from my shelf our music is the overture to don giovanni by mozart and cover art is by Catherine wu our thanks to aston university's center for critical inquiry and to society and culture for funding the startup of this podcast contact us at save me from my shelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on twitter and do not i'm going to remind you do not forget to rate review and subscribe do not forget thank you